So um, Jesus had been up on the mountaintop, was transfigured, came back down, uh, encounters this father with a child who's demon-possessed, and the disciples could not cast the demon out. Jesus cast the demons out. The disciples ask, how did that happen? You know, we weren't able to. Why was that? Jesus closes that section by saying to them, this kind, and I talked about the fact that it, it actually has the idea of this class, this uh, group, this, you could say, clan or maybe even family of demon is what he's saying. So, you know, however, all of those things sort of collectively make a picture in your mind. You know, this kind do not come out uh, but by prayer and fasting. So my temptation is to go through another whole explanation of that, but we'll just move forward in verse 30, then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone uh, to know it. And he's got a, a couple motivations there. Uh, one is there's a group of people that want him to be crowned as Messiah, and that doesn't fit in with his plan. And also there is another group that doesn't want anything to do with him. And uh, they are, uh, you know, beginning to turn against his ministry. So those uh, may well have been contributing factors to his not wanting anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. You would think that that would stand out in their um, thought process, but um, he you know, very much, uh, the, or I should not, he, they very much have a mindset of, uh, you know, Jesus is going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the Savior. He's going to conquer Rome. He's going to become the world leader, and they're all thinking that they're going to have positions in his kingdom, in uh, his government. Um, I, yeah, I'm not making fun of my wife, but by way of illustration, um, my wife easily gets car sick because, um, essentially every time she's in the car, uh, she has the emotional experience that she's driving the car. Okay. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, my best explanation of this is, uh, we, I've described it before. We lived uh, in Ellsworth on Dean Street, and uh, it was on the hill, and the driveway was also a slope, and so backing out into the road was really dangerous. Uh, so I would commonly, uh, when I would come to the driveway, I would pull nose out into the road, and I would back up into the driveway so that when I was going to leave, I'm driving out rather than backing out. Well, Lori is in the passenger seat, and she is so much driving that, uh, you know, I come down the hill and she's got her whole body English going that she's going to be turning right and go up into the driveway and I go left and bang, she hits her head on the window, you know what I'm saying? And I, look, I had to learn to be gracious. I say again, I'm not criticizing my wife. It's just, it's how she functions when she's in an automobile. And so I learned over time to say, hey, I'm going to turn left and back up in the driveway, okay, you know, just to forewarn her in the process. These guys, uh, we call it body English, right? Any of us that remember playing pinball, right? And, and you could you could try to wrench the machine so hard to get the ball to move that you, you would tilt the game. Remember, everybody remember tilt, okay? Well, uh, that, that whole body motion, and you see young guys doing that with the controller now when they're playing games, that, that's called body English, right? You're not affecting anything at all, but you, you're, you know, you're doing all these. These guys have hardcore body English. You know, I'm going to be betrayed and get killed and, and be in the grave three days and, and uh, then rise again. So can I be vice Messiah? You know, uh, did you not hear what I just said is, is what they're dealing with. They, they are going one direction. They have one mindset and, and it's not lining up with the driver, Jesus. 
He's taking them to the cross, right? They all think they're going to thrones of authority, and uh, it's it's messing with them. So here, as he continues, if I can see what I'm reading, going to be killed, rise the third day. They did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Ah, that can't be right. I'll leave that alone. I was going to you know, have a position of authority. Verse 33, then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And this is in the kingdom, right? Uh, you know, Jesus is going to be the ruler, and they're they're arguing over heads of state position. I'll be vice messiah. You know, I'll be head of security. I'll be head of state. You know, no, you'll probably be the dog catcher. You know, they're they're all arguing about who's going to get what role, and and it it focuses on who's the greatest. And I, I caution us, right? I recognize in myself if if we think that we don't do that, um. You know, if if you're saying to yourself right now, I've never even had that kind of argument. I'm not so immature as a believer that I've I've never said such things. Um, where I recognize it in myself, I know you're all much more mature. Um, you can pray for me. Uh, where I recognize it in myself is I see someone doing something, let's say that's even sinful, and I think to myself, well, <laughs> what an immature Christian. And they're doing the exact same thing I do. I, I'm in the same class, and I somehow how are how are we each getting in by the grace of God, right? And yet we do subtly often think you know whether we'll ever say it out loud. We often think, well, thank goodness I'm not like that person or that person. You know, yes, I'm I'm a terrible wretch, but at least I haven't sunk as, as low as that guy or that gal. And honestly, um, you know, we're measuring such small fractions of our own righteousness. It really doesn't matter. It's, it's a really foolish thing to consider, you know, who's better. We're all wretched and we're all saved by grace. So they've had this argument, they've had this discussion, they're not wanting to bring it up, and then he sat down. It's interesting, many of the scholars make note of the fact that he sat down. And um, the reason it's significant is because in this day, when the uh, rabbis... They, they had schools, right? They, they, you get into Acts, and they're all wondering, where did Peter and John go to school? You know, we read of Paul going to the school of Gamaliel. We, we know historically there was what was referred to as the school of the book, uh, particularly meaning the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So you, you had these schools that were run by rabbis, and the rabbis sat while the students stood. So the instruction came from when, when your teacher sat down, it was time to pay attention. It, it was time to, you know, we do it very often the opposite, right? We get a pulpit, we stand it up in the front. When the teacher says, okay, everybody sit down, quiet down, and then he stands up, everybody pays attention. So however this works in your mind, that's a significance in the moment. Jesus sits down and they all go, oh, well, wow, what are, what are we about to learn here? What is Jesus saying to us in the moment? Jesus sits down and uh, called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Uh, major premise in, in Jesus' teaching in his ministry, in his kingdom. I, I always point out that Jesus does not say, if you have the desire to be the greatest, to be the first, 
in the kingdom. That's incredibly wicked. You should not think like that. No one should desire to be great or first or outshine others. That That's wrong. That's He doesn't say that, right? He says, if you want to do that, then the method by which you will achieve that is sinking to the bottom. Go for the lowest position. Serve everyone. Now, I always point out, right, because I see it in these guys and I see it in myself. The next challenge you're going to have with that is then comparing yourself against others for who has become the greatest servant. You know, oh, right, well, I mean, I showed up two hours early and cleaned the toilets and swept the floor and emptied the trash. Did you notice I didn't even point that out to anybody? Oh, well, until right now. You know, I just you know, looking for the recognition, right, of the fact that we are achieving this. The true servant Jesus is talking about is the one who does this simply to serve God. There, there is no earthly connection at all for man's recognition. You know, probably the one who's accomplishing this the most is the one who absolutely receives no recognition for it whatsoever. Um, the founder of Calvary Chapel, his name was Chuck Smith. He's passed away and with the Lord now, but his assistant pastor's name was Romaine, E.L. Romaine. And uh, Romaine wrote a book called Second. And the book Second was explaining to all of us younger Calvary Chapel ministers that God has called and gifted and anointed a senior pastor in each church. And the way that that senior pastor succeeds in fulfilling God's call and gifting and ministry in that church is by others recognizing he's the head of the church and they are there to serve that pastor's vision. Not to have their own vision, not to have other motivations, to literally inquire and learn and glean from that pastor. What is your vision for this church? And then to set about working to accomplish that man's vision. Now, keep in mind, this man was a Marine Corps drill instructor. He was no-nonsense. Some say he was brutal. Steve Mays, years ago, at a pastor's conference, said, E.L. Romaine scarred me physically. And we all laughed, and he kept a straight face and then said, No, seriously. Because, he explained, I was all about myself and trying to grow and succeed and become something special. And E.L. Romaine would not allow it to happen. He describes an occasion where Steve walks in to speak to Chuck Smith. And you have to go into Romaine's office. And Romaine's desk is in front of Chuck's door. And you have to get permission from Romaine to go through behind into Chuck's office. So Steve starts in with, I was wondering if you could and I might be able to. And the door opens behind Romaine. And Romaine starts yelling. I don't know why you would ever think that we need another pastor. But you're not it, Steve Mays. Why would you come in here and try to take over? I've told you, Hunter, just go serve the Lord and stuff. And Chuck gets upset, turns around, slams the door, goes back in. And Romaine says to Steve, gotcha. And he's left, what? Why did you do that? 
That man now thinks uh, all kinds of things about me that are wrong. He said, because you're a man pleaser and all you're concerned about is what that man thinks of you and your only concern should be what does God think of you. So leave this office and go serve the Lord. That's, that's laser sharp, painful accuracy on this mentality right here of what are we here for. Keep in mind, I think we have a copy of Second Out Front. It's, it's like a second or third edition. The first edition of that was written in all capital letters. And a lot of us thought it was like some kind of fluke or error. And Romaine said, no, that's how I meant it. That, that everything should be taken as though I was yelling at you. Serving. Not having any agenda. Steve Mays went on to pastor a church himself. Very powerful church, huge ministry. God used him very powerfully, but he had to learn that humility of I'm, I'm here to serve Jesus Christ. And whatever his motivations are in this ministry, I can be the lowest guy, right? I, I'm not like thinking about you guys here in comparison to this ministry and my role at all. What I'm saying is the greater picture of the kingdom and, and how motivated we are by other people noticing us and, and winning you know, that approval. What, what if we just plug away at the simple things Christ has called us to, right? Uh, I, I, the Lord spoke to me years ago about this passage in regard to Jesus and the fact that when Jesus was baptized, the voice from heaven said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He hasn't even begun his ministry yet. And the Lord is already saying, I'm well pleased. He's been nothing more than a carpenter yet. And the Father says, I'm well pleased in him already. So we want to be careful, right, about all those weird things that we put in place. You know, oh, someday I'll have this, I'll do this. Then, then, are, are we functioning right now? Right now, just moment to moment, and how we treat uh, our spouse and our children and our boss. Is, is that where we're at, or do we have some other you know, agenda? Like, like our, have we got our own body English going on? Right? Are we waking up, spending time with him? Are we at peace with the Lord and just empty in the trash the way that we should? You know? Would, would he say of us right now, this is my son or my daughter in whom I am well pleased, presently, right right now? That's how we need to function. So, you know, try to abandon, and I'm sure it'll be a lifelong process for each of us, right, to abandon this mindset of, you know, wanting to be noticed and people, uh, you know, recognizing us. To add to this, in verse 36, he took a little child and set him in the midst of them, when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, now, a, a few things. Children uh, in this culture, you know, today, children behave very differently than they did at this time in the ancient world. And they were thought of very differently. They were not thought of as persons and personalities anywhere near as much as they are today. They were very much thought of as possessions, and there was the absolute, you know, nearly worldwide, definitely within this culture, there was the mindset of children were to be seen and not heard, okay? Uh, so, so, I mean, I'm not, I'm just painting a picture for you of what children were thought of. I'm not promoting, you know, any direction with this. I'm just saying this is the state of children. At that time. So within this whole picture, he takes his child, embraces him in his arms, and said to them, Whoever receives one of these little or these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me uh, receives not me but him who sent me. 
Um, so a, a child in comparison to the kingdom and embracing a child and how it applies to believers. Children um, don't, um, they're not threatening. You know, when you uh, come into a room and you're suddenly alone with a five-year-old, you're not shaking in your boots. You know, there, there are some people, you know, grown adults, huge, scary. You might be, not with a child, not intimidating. Um, in the kingdom, that humility, right? Jesus Christ has literally all of the power of the universe at his disposal, and yet meekness is how he is. We often want to put on airs. We, we want... Uh, people to have a certain reaction to our demeanor. Not so with children. You, you may, you know, right away have all kinds of things that come as far as what you learn and know about the child, but they, they don't come, generally speaking, children don't come in trying to make a presentation. They may make a presentation and you may learn some you know, really interesting things about them pretty quick. Some of them are precocious, amen? But, you know, just, they don't They don't generally come with, oh, here's a new group of people, I got to put on the show. Well, they get a little older, maybe that starts to come into play. A little child, as Jesus is describing, is the lowest of the low. He, he or she is a possession and sort of clean slate, um, you know, um, Little child, um, if you are super friendly to them, they will be super friendly right back to you. You know, if if you're mean and gruff with them, you're gonna have problems with them. You're gonna create challenges for yourself. Sort of, you know, picking up whatever environment they're in. The, the idea that we need to be as children and embrace those who come into the kingdom that way and not have all of this baggage, right? Think, think about what the discussion he just came out of. Oh, I'm going to be the greatest. Oh, I'm going to have this position. Oh, and then right to the discussion of the child. How, how about just blank slate? You know, none of this involved in, in uh, you know, the, our state of existence. You receive one of these little children in my name, receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Somebody comes into the kingdom and you embrace them as they are, accept them as they are, good, bad, or ugly, and let the Lord perform the work in their lives. And as you do that, right, what you're going to see is it changes you and it changes them. There, there's the need for this simplicity, not not this whole thing of, oh, here comes here comes somebody, i got to show them up. You know, the, 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 a new believer just came in. How am I going to, you know, prove to them I'm better than them? They're lesser than me. You know, you don't have to do that with a child, right? child already knows their position. Uh, you know, I think probably on the job site, right, you know, new guy on the job. Everybody starts sizing one another up. Where's this guy going to fit in? You know, oh, he came from a place where he was in management. Does that mean then, you know, pretty soon this guy's going to be over me? All the weird things of office space politics. It is so messy. This, this cannot be the kingdom. This cannot be the kingdom. It needs to be that where we're accepting people, you know, as children with a childlike state. You know, in time, it may become necessary that you have to make decisions because of things. You know, church discipline, different things may go on. But right now, somebody just coming into the kingdom, just accept them. You know, you don't have to have any of this intimidation process involved. Verse 38, now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him. Because he does not follow us. It, it sounds absurd, right? But 
within churches, there is this mentality of, well, you know, that church down the road, you know, they're not even really Christians. I mean, after all, if you want to be Christian, you pretty much have to be doing exactly what we're doing. <laughs> it's strange the way that Christians behave, you know. Uh, you know, the church down the road is if that is where you're supposed to be, you probably ought to go there. Uh, because, in, you know, I've, I've been in certain churches. I just like, I don't, I don't endorse much of, you know, some of the liturgical churches because of the corruption of their doctrine. But, you know, if liturgy is more a person's mentality of reading, you know, and, you know, priest says, person responds, you know, I think of the Greek Orthodox, you know, not so much Catholicism because of the corruption of the doctrine, but, you know, th that formal process of worship, you know, you go to some churches and hymnal and organ, um, you know, grew up in some of that, you go to, other places and really wild stuff going on in their music and their worship. Um, I, I can't handle any of that stuff. This is what the Lord has called me to. Other people come in here and go, I can't handle any of this stuff. And they go someplace else. So be it. That's where they are at in their maturity. You, you want to call that lower than us? You want to call that higher than us? Uh, whatever, yeah, you know, sit down and talk doctrine. Did Jesus Christ die for your sins? You know, is he God? Is he the only source of your salvation? The basics. You believe these things too? Amen. We're brothers. So be it. This strangeness of, oh man, they don't even have a dove over their door. How could they possibly be casting out demons? because they're a different church. That's all there is to that. It's strange how we divide up into our little groups. Are they casting out demons? Uh, you know, they don't follow us, so I told them they can't do that. Jesus said, do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. Uh, Jesus being the center of this uh, you know, church division we're talking about. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Look, if somebody recognizes, oh, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian too, and they greet you and welcome you in that fashion, then so be it. Uh, there, there are very few churches, you know, and I do mean churches, right? Because I can't put Universalist Unitarians in that group. Because they, they don't honor Jesus Christ as God and as our Savior. You know, you could pretty much be anything else. If you walk in to Universalist Unitarian, they're going to welcome you. If you say you're a born-again evangelical Christian, they're probably going to throw you out on your ear. They, they don't want to hear any of that. You know, I, I do have problems uh, with uh, you know, Jesus-only movement because they, they worship Jesus Christ in an ancient pagan method uh, called modalism where they say that uh, at times, Jesus is Jesus. At times, Jesus is God the Father. And at times, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. And never, they say, never is, is God the Father, God the Father, and Jesus, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The, the, there aren't three distinct persons. There is only one, and it takes different modes. At different, that's modalism. That, that's not the Trinity, right? Uh, I'll go a little further with that explanation so we understand. All right, I've, I've mentioned before, we are body, soul, and spirit. 
Now, that's made in the image of God. Don't, don't misunderstand, right? Because from there, some people go, well, Jesus is the body, and God the Father is the soul, and then the Holy Spirit is the spirit, body, soul, and spirit. So, so we're created in the image of God, and body, soul, and spirit you have, so God has body, soul, and spirit. That's not exactly true, okay? Made in the image. So um, I've got a big mirror in my office so that I can stop and look at myself before I walk out here and sit down and make sure my buttons are all like the same. You know, I haven't like got myself and I don't have mustard on my chin or, you know, just right. The image that is in the mirror, right, is my image. And that is what the scripture is saying about us being created in his image. So, so it is much more complex in the idea of, yes, we are body, soul, and spirit, but you can think of it like the mirror. We are like a two-dimensional reflection of God to say, oh, well, we're body, soul, and spirit, and therefore God is body, soul, and spirit, I think is selling God extremely short. The complexity of which God is so eclipses us that it's difficult to make those types of comparisons. What I will say, right, quite simply is you baptize Jesus, there he is physically in the water, and then we hear the voice from heaven say, this is my son, and then we see the dove descend, symbolizing the Holy Spirit. Three separate examples of God's expression right there. Not, not modalism, okay, and they go so far, follow me with this, this is, I'm, I'm making particulars about this because you need to have particulars in certain cases. Jesus only movement says, so modalism, we believe Jesus only, therefore we are the only ones that are right. And we baptize in Jesus' name, and they point at us and say, none of you do. So therefore, our baptism is the source of salvation. They literally teach this. So much so that if you accept Christ, they have to baptize you immediately. Because if you don't get baptized, then you are not saved. So we believe that Jesus takes on these different roles, and we baptize in Jesus' name, and you just prayed a prayer for salvation, and now we've dunked you in the water and when we pick you up out of the water, you have to speak in tongues. And if you speak in tongues, then you're fully saved. And, and this is really weird. They give you a certificate of the Holy Spirit. You, you, you have received the Holy Spirit. The evidence is you just spoke in tongues. So here's your certificate of the Holy Spirit. And you are saved. Like, what am I going to do? Put that next to my license in my wallet? And when I get to heaven, be like, oh, I, I have my certificate. Are you born again or not? See, that what that is is saying our church is the only source of salvation. The method by which we baptize is the source of salvation, right? What I'm saying to you is the exact opposite, right? You're hanging out here. You like these Bible studies. We're teaching you the Word of God. We want you to get stronger. But if the church down the road is your home church, if they believe the Scripture and are looking to Jesus for salvation, then you're perfectly fine to be at that church down the road because we're all part of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is much bigger than Calvary Chapel, much bigger than Calvary Chapel down east. There are churches all over the world. And Jesus Christ has built those churches. And he recognizes this person is really flighty, so they need this flighty church worship. This person's extremely stoic, so they need a hymnal and an organ. These people are somewhat more con contemporary and really like coffee and cool music, so send them to Calvary Chapel. There, there are supposed to be differences. There are supposed to be differences. See, unity, unity, as we're called to so much in the scripture, is not uniformity. Where we all say and do the same thing and quote the same verses and wear the same clothes and have the same name. You know, it just gets weird. 
I am Bob, and I'm Bob too, and I'm Bob. You know, it just it's, it gets mental at times. There are supposed to be differences. Are they trusting Jesus Christ for salvation? You can't, you can't, you can't, you know, corner the market. We found the special way to baptize people, and that's that's what's saying. I've had fellow Christians say to me, well, because they say that about baptizing in Jesus' name, right? Because there they say the magic words when they baptize people. They don't say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They don't say that. They say, I baptize you in Jesus' name. And, and they say, that's how you're saved. That's the source of salvation. I don't say that. Uh, I've had fellow Christians, other pastors, encourage me, you should just say it, like add it to what you're saying. When you baptize people, say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in Jesus' name, and baptize. Why do I have to cover that base? Right? That's me saying there's something legitimate to what they're saying. It isn't. Right? The name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit is the same name, right? And when we baptize, we are baptizing you into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The salvation is Jesus, not not the method of baptism. The evidence of that? The crucifixion. Jesus is crucified in the middle, and a thief is crucified on either side. Okay, the picture is very clear. Jesus is in the middle. What side are you on? The side that accepted him or the side that rejected him? That's salvation. Notice that there's no baptism at the crucifixion. And Jesus says to the man that accepts him, I tell you that today, you will be with me in paradise. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ's shed blood at the cross. If you get the opportunity to be baptized, you must be baptized. If you have the opportunity and you refuse, now i got to question whether you've submitted yourself to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ got baptized. If Jesus got baptized, are you better than Jesus? Why are you not being baptized? So consider here... No division within the body. Uh, for whoever gives a cup of water, as we read, to drink in my name, verse 41, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he'd be thrown into the sea. So this we've talked about this before in a couple of different ways. Um, I always try to quickly point out the fact that Jesus created the sea, so He knows, right? I, I, some of us have never even uh, thought about this. You dive down into the swimming pool, and that pressure presses in on your ears. You feel the pressure of the ocean. If you lay down on the floor right here, and I took a five-gallon pail, and I put a five-gallon pail full of water on your chest. That's you being, what, 18 inches underwater. You feel that weight. If I put another five-gallon pail of water on top of your chest, you've now got like 80 pounds sitting on your chest. I put another five-gallon pail. This is what it's like to go down. The pressure is building, right? Because here you are, and that much water is stacked on top of you. The deeper you go, the more that weight is upon you. Jesus made the ocean. He knows every 33 feet you go down, the atmospheric pressure doubles. At 33 feet, if you weigh 200 pounds, at 33 feet, it feels like 400 pounds. Every 33 feet you descend, it doubles. The atmospheric pressure is going to crush you before you ever run out of oxygen and drown. That's not just for dramatics. I'm pointing that out because this is how severe Jesus takes the concept of you causing someone else to stumble away from him, to, to leave a relationship with him. It's a very, very serious thing. He takes it very serious. 
consider both directions in that. How serious it is for you as a child of God to hang out with someone who could potentially cause you to stumble away from the Lord in your relationship or for you to be the person that causes someone else to stumble. Right? We need to have as much self-preservation in mind in regard to this as we do care for others walk in relationship with the Lord. It's a very serious thing. The, the millstone hung around the neck, you know, this isn't even just a cinder block, right? You know, some of the depictions I've seen of this, they, they you know, show this small millstone like the women used to use in their kitchen to grind, you know, flour for their meal. Uh, the millstone he's referring to is the industrial-sized millstone that at a minimum weighed 200 pounds. That that an, an ox or a donkey would walk around, uh, you know, grinding out the grist. You're not going to tread water with that. You might tread water with the kitchen millstone for a little while. You know, 45 plate on your chest, kicking as hard as you could. You got a 200-pound millstone tied around you, 300, 600-pound millstone. He's going to plummet towards the ocean floor. Jesus is saying this is as serious as it gets. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck to be thrown into the sea. He then puts this to self-application. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell and to fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into a fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The last two verses will save uh, for just a moment here as we discuss self-mutilation. <laughs> the Lord does not want you to cut off your hand or your foot or to gouge out your eye. He's putting the discussion forward with the most intense outcome that he can possibly describe so that you will consider taking whatever drastic steps are necessary before you would ever get to the place of mutilating yourself, harming yourself, cutting off limbs, gouging out eyes. He's saying, look, it, it, yeah, okay, so, so many people, you know, addiction. I hear things like this all the time. You know, I can't possibly. I've tried everything. I really wish that I could. Uh, and I'll say, okay, so um, what if I helped you go into a rehab? What if I helped you enter a residential discipleship program? Oh, I could never do that. So you're telling me that you're desperate beyond any measure in life, but you won't take this step. I couldn't invest, you know, a whole year. Really, you can't. Six months, can't invest six months in trying to learn the walk of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. You're literally willing to gamble an eternity separated from God against a six-month or year-long investment of your time. If I told you you could get a million dollars by get, just give me one year of your life, you know, you'll be fed and clothed and housed and, you know, you have to work for me. I'll give you a million dollars. If I could tell you that, right, you'd probably jump at that. Separated from God for eternity or in the presence of the Lord for eternity from investing six months or a year. 
couldn't be away from my kids for a year, couldn't be away from my family, couldn't leave my job. So you're willing to roll the dice on eternity. Won't, won't cut off what needs to be cut off. Your drug addiction, that's killing you, right? Your, your, your sexual addiction, your perversion, that's killing you. Destroy, can't get rid of that. You know, your obsession with money and possessions, can't cut that off for a year in order to learn how to walk with Jesus Christ. But you're willing, you're willing to gamble it all. How drastic, how drastic can we become? I uh, had just moved uh, down here to the area and I was living in a house that had cable. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, it's here, it's on. I call the cable company and I'm like, yeah, give me the basic package. You know, I haven't had cable, haven't had television, don't like that filth in my life, but big deal, you know. And uh, I'm up late. I had come home like 10.30 and got something to eat and everybody's in bed and I'm just surfing through channels. And land on full-blown pornography on HBO. And like freak out and shut the TV off and like what in the world is going on, you know make a phone call, a cable company, and oh yeah, no, that's the real deal. It's on your television. That's a thing that HBO is doing now. After 11 o'clock, they put on a series of warnings to tell you, change your channel, because what you're about to see is entirely adult content. Well, I'm horrified. By this, and they're pleading with me to leave it on. Okay, well, you can turn on this parental block. You can do this. You can do that. I went outside my house and ripped the cable off the house and ripped it down off the line and took it out to the road and took the wire cutters up as high as I could and cut it off and drilled a screw this I'm a, this is midnight I'm a lunatic outside coiled up all their cable chucked it in the grass next to the telephone pole went back inside called them up and said all your junk's out by the road you can come by and get that whatever you want but you stop my payment right now no more and I preached him a long sermon about how there's three children in this house. For everything else that's going on, there's three children in this house. And if one of the... It happens where we're watching some kid's movie, right? And dad's all excited. Let's sit down and watch a movie, kids. And I've worked all day and I pass out asleep. And they're left alone with a remote control. What happens... If they stumble on that. It did enough weird things to my adult, deeply committed Christian heart. Let alone what it would do to a child's mind. Are you ready to cut off, gouge out the things that need to go? Because there are things that will destroy your relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and honestly... Most people don't take them seriously enough. They, they don't have the heart to make their flesh suffer a little bit. Right? You know, here, here's, here's the real clencher on this, right? Don't do it, but just for the sake of discussion, cut your hand off. And see if you don't ha learn how to use your other hand to do the same sin. Cut your foot off. And see if you're not just as... Gouge your eye out. And see if you don't have... Gouge both your eyes out. And see if you don't still have lust in your heart. You know, this is hyperbole on Jesus' part. Saying you need to take 
the most drastic steps, which will eliminate the stumbling into sin in your lives. And people don't. And they won't. And they'll whine and cry as though they have, and they haven't even taken the first steps. The Lord really wants us to be in His presence, not separated from Him for all of eternity. And He's saying you have to take sometimes the most drastic steps, and people will not do it. And, and they watch, right? They watch as the sin just mutilates their life, and they just keep it in place. You know, the man obsessed with success and money and business watches as the wife leaves, and and big portions of the money leave with her. But at least he's still got his kids, and then his kids hate him, and they leave. And so I'll overhaul my life, and the second wife leaves, right? 50% of marriages end in divorce, presently. More than 70% of second marriages end in divorce. Do you understand the, the, the prospects that are going on here? You know, more than 85% of third marriages end in divorce. And yet, men and women will not examine themselves and say, what is it about me? that keeps destroying these relationships, right? They'll walk out the door and go, that person stinks, and never examine themselves. And that person stinks also, in a lot of the similar ways that the previous one did. And this one too, who barely stopped by, just sort of went through my life, as, you know what I'm saying? I know people that have been married five times and then found the Lord and their spouse found the Lord and they love one another and they serve Christ together and they are strong and they are following the Lord. They cut off the things that needed to be cut off. They gouged out the things that needed to be gouged out. And it wasn't, it wasn't their hand. It wasn't their eye. You know, more than anything. You know, you know what, you know what needs to go more than anything, right? Well, it's self. Pursuit of self, right? Jesus just came from the discussion of you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, become everyone's servant. Right, carry that concept over into killing, you know, cutting off, gouging out, gouge yourself out, <laughs> right? Get you off the throne. It's a, it's amazing how blind we already are to ourselves, not recognizing how self-centered we are, how destructive we are to ourselves. Let's get these last two in for everyone will be seasoned with fire. Every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. All of this, you know, very figurative, because the fire that he's referring to is the fire of trials, the fiery trials that almost every epistle refers to. Um, I always concentrate on uh, what James had to say. Uh, we're, you know, on uh, our midweek study, we're studying through the book of James now. But Peter talking about, you know, you shouldn't be amazed that you're experiencing these fiery trials. Paul is saying, oh, the fiery trials are very useful to you. They're very beneficial to you. you know, they, they purify and burn away the things that need to go. You know, to quote James, again, you know, consider it pure joy whenever you're faced with trials of many kinds. Because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. 
perseverance must finish its work so that you'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You have to go through difficulties. You'll learn how powerful your flesh is when you start denying your flesh. Um, I mentioned uh, recently uh, you know, the encouragement uh, in our last study on last Sunday night about learning to pray and fast. Um, uh, the very first uh, fast I took from food, um, I was you know 20 years old, very young in the Lord, and um, you know probably should have thought it through a little better. But um, I was working in a grocery store and chose to fast for 24 hours, no food. So stocking shelves from 11 p.m. until 7 a.m. I decided I'm going to fast. And uh, I, I mean, I had grown a lot as a young Christian, but I had not experienced fasting before. Uh, no experience with it at all, you know, basically had never denied my flesh of anything. And um, so now, you know, I had just begun doing that, you know, just, you know, small things like, okay, no more cocaine, you know, no more LSD. I I mean it, you know, no, 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 no more crack. I'm not going to, and no more, I'm fasting for crack, you know, no more beer, no more whiskey, no more, you know, marijuana, you know, Things that I was fasting from, you know, like permanently. I had just begun the process of getting some of these things out of my life, and I decided, well, you know, I should probably tackle this fasting food thing and see what this is all about. So I read a bunch of stuff on it and talked to a couple of pastors that I knew and made it 24 hours, no food. So, um... How it was going to work was uh, I was going to work, you know, uh, get out of work and begin the fast and go all day and then go to work that night and work my shift. And when I got out of work the next morning, I was actually going to meet some friends and have breakfast with them, break fast with them. So uh, I'm middle of the night, 11 to 7 shift, you know, dinner break. Um, I'm standing and I'm talking to a coworker. And all at once, um, he gets this super bizarre look on his face. As though he's frightened, it's really difficult to explain. And I'm in the midst of wondering, like, why does he look so freaked out? I mean, it's hard to explain. I mean, if you've ever seen someone, like, you petrified them in the moment and they get all spazzed out, that's what he's looking at me like. And I'm thinking, like, what is wrong? And then this realization comes to me that I have food in my mouth. And I panic, right? I brought no food with me, and I'm not, what am I doing? And now I'm like spitting all this food out in the trash can next to me. And now he's looking at me even weirder. And I realize that I'm eating his food. It was a bizarre Christian psychedelic moment for me. I freaked out because I suddenly had the total realization that my flesh is truly separate from my soul and my spirit. It wanted food. And it didn't even communicate with the rest of me. It was almost like we were two different people. The flesh didn't want to fast, but the spirit did. And it was like the flesh was like, hey, look over there. <laughs> and as I'm distracted, it's just grabbing my coworker's food and shoving it in its mouth. And I come back to the realization that I'm chewing food. That's how bizarre it was. You guys, forgive me for being this weird as a human being. I ran away and hid 
sobbing convulsively out of fear over the realization that what the Scripture says about the body and the spirit are at war with one another. That the flesh has its own desires that are separate from the Spirit of God especially. In that moment, my flesh did not even communicate with the rest of my person. It did what it wanted to. And I was left with the realization of how many times has my flesh wanted something and dragged the rest of me into it. It's sinful corruption just taking me wherever it wants to go. I, I was, oh, I'm thinking my way through this. I'm making my own choices. I'm really processing. You're doing nothing other than obeying what your flesh says. Have all the conflict in the world you want, right? The trials, the fire. You're going to be seasoned with fire. You're going to go through trials. And you have to go through them, right? Salt. You're going to have the fire. You're going to have the salt. Salt. Uh, the seasoning of God's word in our lives is also the preservative. In this day, you know, forgive me, you guys, if you feel like you've heard it too many times, but when Jesus is saying, you're the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, salt was the single largest method of preservation of all things. Everything. You get meat, salt it, dry it, hang it. There is no refrigeration. Salt keeps the decomposition from happening. Have you guys ever found a McDonald's hamburger that's been in a wrapper under a seat in your car for months? You have to go through like, when in the world did I even... Buy this thing. I can't, right? And you, and, and if you're like me, you've got to see it. You know what I'm saying? You open it up, and it looks just like the day you bought it. Like there's nothing wrong with it at all. I mean, you're not going to eat it. You might have even thought about it, but you're not going to. Here's the thing if you have the freedom and you want to, go through McDonald's sometime. And ask them for a hamburger or a cheeseburger with no salt. Ask them for it. You'll be astonished at how differently that hamburger tastes. Have you seen them salt the fries? Have you seen that? That hideous display of white shower that just, you know what I'm saying? Just quack, quack, quack. So much salt. The hamburger experience is the same thing. Massive amount of salt. You know, put the blood pressure cuff on. Go through the drive-thru. Test the blood pressure. Eat the burger. Test it again. Right? Massive amount of salt. That's why, that's why it doesn't decompose. It's preserved. Right? You go, convenience store, you know. When would you ever buy steak in a bag? That doesn't make any sense. But you'll buy beef jerky. Right? Salt. Right on the back. Sodium, number one ingredient, or at least number two. Beef, then salt. You know, sometimes it's salt, then beef. Crazy. So much sodium in that. It's keeping it from decomposing. You need the trials and the preservative in your life that will keep you from rotting that will keep your flesh from taking over and decomposing everything. You need the preservative in your life. And we are to be the preservative in the world. We are to be salt in this world. I'm saying it right now especially. Get on the school board. Get on city council. Run for governor. Be the president, please. We need believers who, who trust the word of God implicitly in order to act as the reason things are falling apart and decaying 
so badly is because the salt has been extracted from all of these environments. There is no Christian influence. People have thrown up their hands and acted like, oh, that's the world and it's already corrupt and we don't have anything. To, if that's your method, then, you know, there goes the neighborhood, man. The decomposition is going to be complete. Everyone will be seasoned with fire. Every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourself. Have peace with one another. The seasoning of the Lord, the preservative in our lives. I'll say this last thing about the sacrifice that you are, right? Everyone will be seasoned with fire. Every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. The sacrifice that you are, uh, the Old Testament sacrifices were easy to handle. You just plunge a knife through its neck, slash it open, and all the thrashing stops in just a few seconds because the life drains right out of it. You, unfortunately, I, unfortunately, we are living sacrifices who fight to get up off from the altar, who try to unnail themselves from the cross. You have to willfully submit to the process of spiritual death. Your flesh that will reach down into your co-worker's lunch will also just rise right up and demand to do its own thing. In the middle of you trying to be a servant of Jesus Christ, your flesh will try and overpower the circumstance. You, you have to grow in strength as a child of God and fight against that appetite of the flesh. Keep it bound to the altar. Now, they used to bind the sacrifices to the altar. For what purpose? It's dead. You have to be bound to the altar. I have to be bound to the altar in order to serve the Lord. That willful submission, right? Jesus demonstrated that process in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, basically, I'm paraphrasing, I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And he embraced separation from God and death for our sake. Yeah. Hebrews asks us, which of you has resisted temptation unto bloodshed? Right? Cutting off your hand or gouging out your eye. It is a powerful thing to put your foot down and say to your flesh, no, no more. No, I'm not going to do it. You, know, you might want to start with the one thing that keeps popping into your mind right now. Because if you start with all of them, they will all turn and attack you. Eliminate one at a time. Let Christ eliminate one at a time. But you've got to be, what do they say, serious as a heart attack about doing it. Otherwise, your flesh will win. So, conquer the flesh, crucify the flesh, live for Christ. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray.